You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 16th of May 2021 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, coming up live in the next 60 minutes. We dash from London to Zurich and back as my guests go through the weekend's news. Here in a chilly London, Vincent McAvinney will guide us through what he's spotted. Vinny, what have you got? Well... Apparently all the tickets for art, shows and theatre are selling out fast here in London, according to the papers. But at the same time, that summer that we were promised the big reopening might have gone bust because the Prime Minister Boris Johnson didn't want to offend the uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So that might be all cancelled now. Florian Egli will be scanning the Sunday papers for us in Zurich. Florian, fill us in if you might. So I must say the Sunday Swiss newspapers are not very exciting today, but there is a quiet Sunday here, a long weekend. I cycled through a car-free city and we'll hear about what Paris is all about in terms of becoming car-free too. Thank you very much indeed, Florian. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will join us from Sud-Tirol and Tessa Shishkovitz, the UK correspondent for Profil, will tell us what's in her magazine this week. So a busy 60 minutes ahead here on Monocle on Sunday. So a very warm welcome. Before we begin, a quick look at some of the news headlines. The US President Joe Biden has phoned Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas after another day of violence in the region. At least 10 people died in Israeli airstrikes on a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip on Saturday, while a Palestinian rocket killed a man in Israel. The US climate envoy John Kerry has asked Pope Francis to attend this year's COP26 climate conference. Mr Kerry is thought to believe that Pope Francis has the the moral authority to sway public opinion over global warming. The head of the world's busiest airport for international passengers has said COVID vaccine passports are the only way to restart mass foreign travel. Dubai Airport's chief executive Paul Griffith said he didn't think there was an alternative and that they are inevitable. And for the first time, a cruise ship will operate on Switzerland's lakes. The Attila will take multi-day trips on the Morton, Neuchatel and Beale lakes. Designed by Atelier Oi, there will be nine double cabins, a captain's lounge and a covered bathing platform. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. First of all, let's cross to Murano now to hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Good morning. Buongiorno, Tyler. How goes it in Italy? Good morning. Buongiorno. It's all very good in this part of Italy, Emma. We are, it's really a little bit the, the morning after the night before, or the day before anyway, because uh, as uh, we are, of course, we'll be talking about across the programme, Things are opening. Uh, quarantines have been lifted for many incomers into Italy. And we wanted to be the first out of the blocks yesterday. So we reopened our outpost in Murano uh, going into its sixth season here. And I assume that everybody was ready and raring to go. I mean, the spirit here in London is that we just cannot wait for tomorrow when we can sit inside to have a drink rather than sitting in the rain. And we can start going to museums, galleries, theatres again. I know that my diary is booked for the next couple of weeks. No, it's it's the same here as well. I think that this is um, it's been kind of fascinating to to of course just look at license plates because you know, officially um, up until really the start of the weekend you're only allowed to come into 
uh, Italy for official business uh, for very compelling reasons. But judging by the amount of uh, Mercedes, BMWs, Audis with V plates on them heading down the autostrada, I think there was a, a few people from Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg getting a bit of a head start on, on everybody else. But that's one of the fascinating things, Emma, there's there really there are no border controls or checks when coming into uh, into um, Italy from Switzerland, I mean, you, you drive through, uh, you, you get a, a nod uh, from the Goddard di Finanza as you pass through, and, and that's that's really, really it. And then and a little bit, I guess, like the UK as well, restaurants are open, you're supposed to produce a test going in, um, but maybe this being Italy, even this part of Italy, people aren't too fussed about uh, checking for papers. That's interesting because we haven't had anything like that. I mean, heaven forbid anyone ask us to present, produce test results or anything if we go to the pub. I think it would just co- collapse into anarchy. But is, is there a sense that people are quite quite up for that? I mean, just listening to what's in the news, that the head of Dubai airports is saying that the only way we're going to get mass foreign travel again is if we have COVID passports and vaccine certificates. Well, this is a bit of a question I've been pondering over the last week as I've been going through Italy, but I've been just following the news. Have we seen much about vaccine passports in the United States? I've not seen a lot uh, written about what is going to happen. And this is one of the interesting things because we have to focus on the U.S. if we're talking about Europe, because when we look at hopefully the, the, you know, the, the recovery we're going to see in tourism, a lot of hotels, I was talking to hotel uh, managers across the week, there's a lot of forward bookings, Emma, for, uh, you know, from, from U.S. guests. And this is not just... American passport holders in Europe. These, these are people who are going to be flying in from Atlanta, from New York, from Chicago. So you know, there is you know, a great hope that you know across July and August you'll see a lot of Americans coming in. Now, what will the Americans need to produce? Will there be something available by then? So I have a bit of a question mark about uh, this whole passport program because I've not seen you know again anything from Swiss authorities saying I'm due to get some type of uh, pass over the coming weeks. Of course, we've heard from, uh, of course, out of Brussels as well, that, you know, something is in development. But there's, there's a side of it, I think, you know, is this all just going to go away? We get to a point where so many people are vaccinated, um, and even if there are the odd outbreak, uh, of course, you know, maybe there, there's a they're gambling that the system is going to be able to, to cope with it, because I don't see how we're going to join up the entire planet <laughs> over over the coming weeks to be able to support uh, a summer season in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, looking at this, supporting a summer season, I, I can't tell you how many of us here in the United Kingdom at least have our fingers hovering over the enter button of our keyboard to confirm all the lists, the wish lists of ho- juicy holiday de- destinations that we've put in. I mean, it, is the likes of Italy ready for all this? Because believe me, when everybody presses enter, they're going to need bigger planes. Well, listen, they're not going to be landing any A380s uh, or anything wide body at, at, at Bolzano Airport. I can tell you that much. But, uh, I think if you venture a little bit uh, further south to, to Verona and, and, and elsewhere, it just as you go down like Garda, as you pass, you know, past Bergamo and Brescia, everyone is not, not, not just saying that they're dusting on the chairs. The, the loungers are already out. Uh, the towels are neatly folded. So, of course, they're ready for you know, the Germans who are certainly driving down at the moment, or they might be taking trains. Um, but there is there is definitely a sense in in Italy uh, that that they are absolutely ready. And then of course you know these are the immediate or the surrounding markets are incredibly important to them. Interesting side note though, I was I was really struck that when I was in 
Como, Bergamo, Milan over the past few days, also being um, in Bolzano and Murano, I thought that you would see many, many more uh, you know, for lease signs, for rent signs uh, in, in retail, in, in shuttered restaurants. But one of the amazing things is that these Italian town centers have been remarkably resilient. So you know, maybe the, the perception was that they were going to be completely decimated uh, by you know, the events of the last year and a half, but the town centers are incredibly resilient. Um, and that was, that was just, that was striking. And, and of course, just incredibly positive. And again, you, you know, this weekend you have really the first rush of tourists. We spoke to a retailer who's actually going to be the next issue of Confect. And she said it was amazing. She had her first tourist since October. Amazing. I mean, is there any, very briefly, is there any reason why this, this resilience has, has managed to pay off so well, given the fact that so many other countries are bemoaning the fact that their high streets look like look like mouths without teeth? Well, I heard one remarkable story from a, a, a builder or project manager, and he said, one of the amazing things that's been happening in Italy, he said there was a program called Super Bonus 110, which of course sounds like that could be something that would happen in a big bingo hall, uh, or it sounds like some type of national uh, lottery, but this is a, a very complicated and painful uh, stimulus program that they have in Italy, which uh, would guarantee up to 110% to cover the cost of any renovations. So what I have noticed here is that there has been a lot of tarting up of, of buildings in the region. And I think a lot of people you know, went for uh, this, yeah, this 110% uh, loan that you could get to, of course, Put on an addition to your hotel, um, add a couple of bedrooms, uh, retile the roof. So this was something that uh, the, the government embarked on to to make sure that the building trades uh, were, were, of course, able to be a vital part part of the economy. I think the other thing, I mean, you know this part of the world incredibly well, and I think the other reason for this level of resilience as well, you're in these town centers, you look above the doorways and some of these shops have been around since 1828, uh, or, or some of them are even older. These are family enterprises, uh, and I think in many cases, not over leveraged. There's a lot of money in the bank. Of course, there's been a level of government support, uh, but it's not been a situation, or it's not a situation culturally, um, where people are living month to month. There, there are deep savings, and and you really get the sense that this is this is certainly this behavior. Is, is one of the reasons people have been able to, of course, you know, weather this pandemic. Tyler, thank you so much. Uh, that was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, in Murano, in Italy, which apparently smells of paint. Um, we're both in London and Zurich, as well as Italy, this Sunday, going through the weekend news in the papers. I'm delighted to say in our studio in Dufourstrasse 90 is Florian Egli, senior associate at Foraus, the Swiss foreign policy think tank. Good morning, Florian. Um, are, we, uh, are we bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in, in Zurich, all open and, and having fun again? We are, but it's a quiet weekend here, as I said in the very beginning. So everybody seems to have moved out of the city, you know, going south uh, to Ticino at least or even further. Um, It's a long weekend here in Switzerland and it's a quiet Sunday morning. Sun is coming up a little bit, so might be promising, you know. Vincent McAvinney, a reporter and Monocle 24 regular commentator. In the studio, Vinny, this is good to see you back. I know, it is very nice to be 
back here. The energy's there. It feels it feels normal and right. And and Florian, I'm so sorry that you're in the, you're sort of on the end of a line. If only we could all be together in the same room. But um, Vinny, just listening to what Tyler was just saying there in 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 Italy, this in this super bonus one ten where people were encouraged to um, you know, gussy up their front windows and get themselves sorted again. And there was this sense that things are still there. There's a resilience. Um, the front, the high street hasn't been decimated. I mean, that's a very, very different story from what we're seeing here. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, one thing I would say is I've noticed going kind of back out physically shopping more now that the non-essential shops are open. There have been businesses that have taken the opportunity to, you know, do work that they never could have done in the normal operating of their stores uh, because they've, you know, done a bit of tarting up and things like that. Um, but yeah, you drive around uh, streets, you know, I've been across the country throughout the pandemic and you go through most city centres and you notice a large number of shop fronts gone. Apparently one in 10 restaurants of being reported as having closed during the pandemic. Um, and it's not just the, the bigger places as well. I was in the Lake District last week for a break and a small tourist town that I was in, lots of the lovely shops that were independent stores have all closed during the course of the pandemic because obviously, you know, they, they had that reliable tourist income constantly and that's gone. So it is big and small places that have really suffered through this. I wonder because, I mean, the centre of London at the moment, you do see these enormous gaps where shops have been and restaurants have been. And you think... Okay, that's terrible for that one shop, especially if it's an independent one. I mean, many of the ones, the big names that we've seen die in the last year were not necessarily going to last much longer anyway, let's be honest. Driving here, you know, Debenhams, which was one of the oldest department stores, one of the biggest in the UK, all boarded up on Oxford Street. Even, you know, real prime locations like Oxford Street. Yesterday I had to go through uh, Westfield and Stratford. And these are, you know, very uh, high, uh, you know, density, you know, shopping centres areas where you get lots of people coming. Oxford Street's the busiest shopping street in Europe. And there are so many stores empty. And you can sort of play a game of like, okay, so which brand used to be there? Which restaurant used to be there? And try and remember what it was. And I think if, you know, if you look on Google Earth now, it's a bit of a time capsule of life pre-pandemic versus what the high street now looks like. It's amazing how quickly you forget, isn't it? I was looking at a shop window yesterday and scratching my head as to what had been there just six months before and I, and I, I couldn't remember. Florian, is there that similar situation in, in, in Switzerland or has there been a kind of an overall resi- resilience where you are? I think so, a lot of the big cities here in, London, in the UK have, have, are just about holding it together, but outside in the smaller towns, I think they're going to they're gonna face bigger problems on the high street. How about where you are? So in Zurich, they leave the signs on. So that makes it easier, right? So you see these empty (laughs) restaurants, but it's still the old sign. So you remember. (laughs) Um, So there's nostalgia. Yeah, it's a bit of nostalgia when you walk through the city. But but for now, I mean, to be honest, I haven't seen that much of, of, of you know, shop closings and, and really empty, empty storefronts or, or or restaurants. I mean, you know, the, the odd restaurant here and there has closed down, of course. Um, but but overall, I think, um, especially Zurich has quite, has fared quite well. And I think those that suffered, I mean, it's also always important to, you know, look at, okay, what actually closed down? Um, because, you know, some things might not be so dramatic if, if they do close down. So in, in, in Zurich, and I mean, I think that's also valid more, more broadly, the industries that struggled are just those that rely on international tourists, right? So actually a lot of because Switzerland has never or has only very temporarily had a real lockdown, a lot of the um, shops or, or bars or restaurants that actually cater to locals, um, to their communities, um, that provide you know products or services, useful things to local communities, they have actually fared quite well. So we've seen, you know... Um, 
I, I mean, grocery, um, sort of these these Emma stores, <laughs> um, as you call them in German, um, at the corner, you know, actually doing doing better than before because people appreciate, you know, not having to go too far and, and spend more time in their city. So I think overall, it's not been that devastating, partly because there hasn't been a, a very long lockdown, partly because there have been generous government support programs, and partly also because... A lot of those little shops are actually catering to local communities. Um, Florian, let's stay with you in the subject of cities and have a look at what's making the news. Albeit kind of quiet where you are because you have a you have a public holiday this weekend, don't you? But France is, is going to be even quieter, or rather parts of Paris should be even quieter. Um, if the mayor Anne Hidalgo wants to have her way. I mean, there's been a story that's been doing the rounds for a couple of days about how um, four areas of central Paris could actually be car-free as early as next year. What have you spotted on that one, Florian? Yeah, I mean that's quite amazing. I mean, I mean if you've been to Paris lately, I mean it's just the traffic is is you know it's just always clogged, especially center Paris, because a lot of people actually you know trying to go from north to south or from east to west have to really go through the center. And Paris is an extremely densely populated city, even for European standards, and it just doesn't work anymore. So it just it's not built for cars. It never was, and then you know um, it just become became more and more clogged up in the in the past. I would say like 50 years and now there is really a movement that goes um, in the other direction so Anne Hidalgo the mayor of Paris she was comfortably re-elected and some people or pundits actually say she's eyeing for the presidency as well so there might be some competition for Emmanuel Macron from from her side that's to be seen but um, she's she's very popular and she's managing Paris very well it seems and she is promising from next year um, to make really the center almost car-free. So there is still a debate what kind of cars will be allowed. So, of course, residents and taxis, um, of course, you know, everything related to shops and, and local businesses. But then after that, there is still a bit of debate what should be allowed and what not. There is a public consultation phase that now opened up until October. Um, again, <laughs> very French in that sense. So you really, you know, b- broadly announced public consultation. And then let's see what comes out of this, because um, Emmanuel Macron has done that a couple of times, very sort of open in the public and then not really considered what the consultation came up with. Um, let's see how Anne Hidalgo is doing on that front. But I'm excited to travel to Paris next year and to be able to stroll, you know, through central Paris, the Quartier Latin or um, by the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay and not be surrounded by, you know, seven lanes of cars. It's funny, though, that the areas that you mentioned, Florian, um, I mean, you know Paris pretty well as well, but don't you, Vinny, you know, you work there and... The areas that she's she's hanging she's she's singling out. Florian mentioned there, you know, the two islands on the Seine, the Marais up by the Louvre. These are already subject to very very stringent um, car restrictions. Anyway, I mean, I've I've managed to do that that stroll, Florian, pretty car free in the last couple of occasions that I've that I've turned up, and and I went when I read this article, I just thought. This is actually perhaps slightly less radical than the than than this is all than the headlines are making it out to be. That Anne Hidalgo has been pushing hard for getting rid of cars from from the centre of Paris for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to have been signposted. I remember going on a trip a couple of years ago with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, to uh, to Paris in 2017. And this was being discussed then and that it was going to be all electric cars. So, you know, it has been well signposted. It does seem to be the way that, you know, many cities are going. If you look at the kind of different ways that London's approaching it, you've obviously got the congestion charge zone, which has been extended and extended in its hours and reach, uh, and effectively saying that, you know, in a decade's time, petrol cars will not be welcome 
welcome in London. There's an extra charge for cars that don't have the latest emission standards. But as well as that, in the planning system in London now, uh, most private uh, apartment complexes that are built, you can only put in parking spaces for disabled residents and no one else will get a parking space to try and just limit even the number of resident cars that are in London to get people into uh, under TfL. And when you look at, you know, it has been remarkable, as we were saying with shops a minute ago, if you drive around London in February uh, 2020 versus driving now, it is a completely different city. So many roads, which were four or five lanes, have been had their pavements extended. You've got just one lane of traffic each way. Uh, you've got more cycle lanes than ever. They've used this opportunity to really redo a lot of the infrastructure. And I was, you know, out in the evenings this week in, in London. And there's so many restaurants now that have built out onto the pavements, uh, off the pavement, into the road, these dining spaces, lots of streets in central, central London, like in Soho, where the streets are shut down and there's, you know, tables. And it just feels so much better. And you just think, like, why would we ever go back to flooding these streets with so much traffic? It's not necessary. I'm not sure I would agree with you on that point for the simple reason that I tried to sit on one of these pavement cafes this week and ended up just getting a, a lung full of bus and thought, actually, this is no fun. This is really, really no fun. Because I've noticed the absolute opposite, that in actual fact, given the fact that there's been a real understandable fear of taking public transport in the year. Mm. I'm using my car a lot more than I used to and I know a lot of other people are. We're staying in the car and clogging up the roads again. Now, Florian, I would love to see them try and introduce a car-free zone in the centre of Zurich. I mean, there are more double exhausts where you are than anywhere else I've ever seen. Indeed, yes. And I mean, what, what Vinny mentioned is, is interesting, you know, regarding uh, regarding parking spaces, because in Zurich, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's still mandatory for every apartment or basically every household to provide one car park. So the result of this, and, and that's, that I'm sure of, is that we have more parking spaces in Zurich than trees. And it's just completely against any intuition of, you know, what a livable and walkable city looks like. And I think a lot of cities in Europe, at least that I'm aware of, have really used this um, this pandemic to, you know, kind of implement changes in a temporary manner that now sneakily become just like they stay there and cities kind of take over and can decide, you know, what happens in their um, in their city parameter, although maybe by law they wouldn't have the authority to do so. And Zurich has been extremely hesitant. So we've had, you know, um, popular initiatives on you know, providing bike lanes through Zurich accepted, I think, with 70 or 80 percent in favor. So huge, you know, um, support from the population and nothing happens. And also during this pandemic, you know, it's the city has taken a very kind of slow and, and kind of, you know, hold back approach and, and hasn't really hasn't really moved. So I think there's tremendous potential and I would like to see more of that in Zurich for sure. And, and in, in London, I wonder whether things are moving faster than, than people are ready for, Vinny. The, the fact that, you know, really simple thing. I, I needed to take my 84-year-old mother across London this week. Um, she's sprightly, but she's not up to walking two miles there and two miles back, let's be absolutely honest. And, and why should she? And so I ended up having to get in a car because I didn't want to put her in a taxi, blah, blah, blah. And I suddenly thought, how much are these ideas now being designed for people who are just like the designers? You know, you design a city for, 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 for someone in your mirror image. And the thought of, you know, there will be someone who will say, well, actually, sorry, we need taxis, we need this, we need that. 
it, it's not taking into consideration the full needs of everybody, is it? Yeah, it's not. I suppose and in public transport, the issue that we've had in London is the, the tube map versus the tube, accessible tube map is a completely different story. You remove most of the stations from it. Uh, and there has been problems in the UK with buses uh, and there was a fight with, you know, but it was disabled people who thought in wheelchair bound who fought for a space on the bus for them to be able to get on and to always have access. Uh, and now there's a clash in London where uh, if a mother with a pram or a father with a pram is in the wheelchair space, they don't have to be forced to move. And so disabled people uh, get left at stop. So, yeah, some of these issues just aren't thought through. But, you know, a lot of people, we had the first death last year uh, recorded in the world, it was thought, in the UK, of being a death uh, of a young girl a few years earlier, having been caused by air pollution in the city. And this is something that I think parents of the millennial generation are a lot more hot on when we talk to friends who are having children and, and have young children in London. They are looking at the air pollution maps in London because they're incredibly worried about the effects of it. Is this something that affects you where, where you are, Florian? I know my son came home from school two days ago wearing a badge, uh, having taken part in something called the Chill Test, which is uh, the community health in London and somewhere else in, in the UK. And basically they're measuring the size of his lungs to see whether the growth has been affected by the centre of London. I mean, it's a pretty worrying thing to have, you know, your, your son come home wearing that kind of badge. But it's a suggestion that people are actually taking a little bit more care over what's happening. And, you know, no one's likely to move out of the centre of town just because he's wearing a badge saying your lungs might be a bit smaller than other kids. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to move house just yet. I, I'm not sure how, how you know, well my lungs are doing or how large they are. <laughs> I don't think there is any any um, trustworthy stats on that. So, I, I don't know, we, we don't have these tests. Um I mean, I think, you know, part of, of why cities like Zurich aren't doing a lot in terms of policy um, in that regard is because it's not so urgent, right? It's it's still a comparatively small city. I mean, at about 400,000 residents, you know, it's quite green. You know, you have to the left and right, you have a green hill. You, you I mean, at the, at the bottom of a lake, then there's a river flowing through the city. So um, you have quite a bit of wind, you know, going in and out. So I think in general, air pollution is not an issue. And therefore, probably also, um, it, it hasn't been, you know, so much a priority from um, at least like in local politics. Although I think the population is very aware of kind of like how the urban local environment is designed and has become much more vocal about this. And and I think there there's just a lot of potential, you know, in creating in, in creating these living spaces more I mean, pedestrian friendly, but just also, you know, I mean, cafes or shops or there's just so much that benefits if people actually, you know, move a bit slower and walk or cycle and actually look at things. Um, there was this city in in, in Spain um, that basically declared car free um I think 20 years ago or something and local retailers went you know bonkers against it and 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 you know there was huge lobbying against it and a few years later all the business figures were up because people actually appreciated it spent more time in the city center so I think there is really a lot of potential there we just have to grab it Florian, there's a story that caught your eye, isn't there, about this in terms of the way that the world is galvanising uh, itself in, at COP26, the climate conference that's happening in Glasgow. Um, not just talking about the climate, but in actual fact, talking about bringing people together in the same room. Um, we had a G7 meeting here in London a couple of weeks ago, which had an unfortunate few cases of the Indian variant of COVID from the Indian group. Uh, so I think a few people learnt their lessons with that one. <laughs> um, uh, how, are we, how are we faring with COP26? 
So I've read now that The Guardian has had a piece um, that the former UK business secretary has announced, um, and he's kind of the, the president designate for the COP26, the climate conference that was supposed to happen last year and is happening this year now in Glasgow. Um, and he announced that this will happen in person. So um, over with virtual meetings and people, you know, delegations from about 190 countries will fly to Glasgow and meet there. So, I mean, will this be the next super spreader? I don't know. I mean, it's he has been very vague in terms of what precautions or, or what kind of systems they plan to put in place, you know, in terms of vaccinating people, in terms of testing people, of course. Um so I think that's all, all still very much up in the air, but it's it's an interesting sign that he publicly announced now that they're going to do everything they can to hold this meeting in person, because for me it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weighing the options. So I think we're really as a global, you know, as a global citizen or you know, as you know, um, the world we're we're um, we're dependent on these negotiations being somewhat fruitful and and you know that that we can address climate change in the longer term so i think there is a tremendous value in holding these meetings in person because it is just difficult to negotiate virtually and i mean imagine how difficult it is to do that for 190 delegations i mean it's just complete mess i imagine um but then on the other hand there is the uncertainty of cancellation right so if you hold if you promise to hold it in person then it's always going to be this thing it could be cancelled you know just four weeks ahead or three weeks ahead so which of those should be weighted more heavily and i think i mean i'm hopeful that this will take place and i'm hopeful that it helps to have it in person and also there was a statement issued by a lot of the representatives from you know um, developing countries and, and smaller um less I would say, wealthy or powerful states that say they really rely on this. So they cannot do this virtually because um, they don't have access to this um, in, in all circumstances, but they would really rely on having this in person. Now, here again, I'm not sure if that's really the case or if they just, you know, want to have the delegation trip to I Glasgow. Would, yeah, I would, but I, I mean, say there is no way the British government is going <laughs> to let this happen as a virtual meeting. Absolutely not. I think there are there are two things at play. There are the domestic and there are the international here. The UK government, you know, Boris Johnson has been prime minister for coming up on two years and he still hasn't really flexed muscle on the international stage, partly because he spent the first six months doing Brexit and then he's been locked it. down ever since. Yeah, exactly. So the UK government is desperate to make sure that the world knows we've not become little Britain, that we've not kind of become insulationist. And they have two opportunities this year. They've got the G7 uh, down in Devon, and then they've got COP26 up in Glasgow. So it is a huge platform for brand UK, for Boris Johnson to look like he is a global leader. So they will do everything in their power to make sure that that goes ahead in person. And on the domestic front, I'd say that, you know, the placement of the COP26 in Glasgow is uh, very strategic from the UK government because it's about making, you know, it's Scottish independence after our recent uh, elections here last week is very much back on the cards. And this is Boris Johnson wanting to show that a united United Kingdom is a world player, that it deserves its seat at the top tables of power. Uh, and doing that in Scotland is to sort of showcase that, uh, you know, the UK government takes uh, climate change very seriously, which is a big issue in Scotland, uh, but also that, you know, this is one country and it can and it can really lead the world. He will be making the argument that if Scotland Scotland was independent, you know, they would never be hosting a conference like this with all the world coming. And if they were independent, they would be a very small voice on the world stage. So there is no way that this meeting is happening over Zoom.
No, it's and, not. And does it work for the Scots? Are they actually appreciating Boris organizing the conference in Glasgow? What or, do you or, think, Florian? <laughs> <laughs> Given he didn't, quiet I don't think one. he went north of the border in the recent elections. He he's, did. He uh, went to once, didn't he, and got told off. Oh no, that was a, that was a, the Cambridges. That was the Royals. That they was went the Cambridges. North, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was noted that someone left London at some point and got shouted at. Um, Vincent McAvinney and Florian Egley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to continue now on Monocle on Sunday with a look at what's going to be on the pages of a brand new edition of Austria's Profil magazine. Joining me on the line is Tessa Shishkovitz, who's a Publications UK correspondent. Good morning, Tessa. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. It's a little bit of sun, I think, I see outside my window, which is rather rare in London. I don't believe you, Tessa. That's the only thing I can <laughs> say. Take, take a photograph of it, because I think I, had, I felt some warmth on my arm for about 35 seconds last Wednesday, and I remember it distinctly. Um, it's good to have you with us. Uh, what's happening in Porfiel this week? Trouble for Can- Chancellor um, Sebastian Kurz. Yes, I mean, he's the wunderkind of populist right-wing politics uh, over the past years. As you might have seen, he was sort of even a role model for other right-wing governments in the East and in the West. But now he is in serious trouble. So the cover of Profil of the new edition um, is uh, Causa Kanzler. You know, we call our prime minister's uh, kanzler in the German-speaking countries. He has uh, according to the economics and corruption uh, state prosecutor. Uh, He's under suspicion of having given false testimony in a parliamentary uh, committee investigation into the corruption scandals of his previous uh, government. Uh, From 2017 to 2019, he was in in coalition with the far-right FPÖ. And so Austria is quite shaken by these corruption scandals and one after the other is coming out and it even reaches Kurz now. If he will be uh, actually accused uh, of having been lied and if they open a uh, court case against him is in question uh, and certainly also if he would be convicted. But what he is now under suspicion is something that could lead to three years in prison. So it's quite serious. It is quite serious given the fact that Sebastian Kurz has been dogged by scandal, perhaps not directly affected, affecting him. But this has not been the squeaky clean chancellery that, that, we, that, that he promised that it would be, this fresh start for Austria. Yeah, absolutely. So he came to power as this young, clean-faced man who said that this uh, practice in Austria, which we call Freundelwirtschaft, which would be something like favoritism, which of course also exists in other countries, if if we look at the UK currently, with uh, former prime ministers and current prime ministers and ministers being involved in several cases. Uh, But in Austria, it was sort of a practice after the Second World War between the two big democratic parties, the social democrats and the conservatives, who sort of tried to to, to govern in consensus. And out of this grew this very sort of um, uh, sleazy, familiar type of um, uh, politics where every part of the country uh, got every part of the political families always got their share of top posts. Now, when Kurz came to power, it became very uh, focused on what they call now uh, in in uh, chat protocols that we got to see in this prosecution 
of corruption cases. They call themselves the family, and it's sort of a, a group of, of a few um, conservative courts uh, friends that got all these top posts and not always in the best ways and without sort of proper uh, procedures. And so it's quite, you know, he's, it's really starting to be uncomfortable for him, his finance minister, you know, they had the, 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 the prosecutor had to arrest laptops and, and telephones to find out what really went on in these past three years since Kurtz is in power. And it really shows that it's not so easy to change political culture and that certainly he is, to a certain extent, even more bold than the, the old uh, governments, the previous governments were. Interestingly, so it has to be also said that Profil made a new poll on how the Austrian public sees all this. And his popularity has not exactly collapsed. So the question would be, if uh, he gets um, to go to court and has to fight for his, uh, you know, to stay out of prison, which is really not as for certain, but it's an option, then the question would be, do he, does he have to resign? And he himself took matters in hand and already told, um, told in, in interviews, he said already that he would not. So he's basically trying a Netanyahu, even in case that his uh, legal situation becomes very questionable, he would still continue uh, in his post as prime minister. So we are going into a rather interesting political period now in Austria, I think, for the next month at least. Thanks, Tessa. Um, Florian, I'm going to bring you in. I mean, in, in our Zurich studio, um, working at Voraus, you know, the, the Swiss foreign policy think tank, I mean, what did the Swiss make of all this? I mean, having this troublesome neighbour. <laughs> yeah, we, we're stricter at the borders. No. <laughs> no, I mean we we look at this. I mean, I would say it's not it's not a very big issue. First of all, so it's not widely covered in Swiss Swiss media. It's not widely discussed in politics. Um, we look at this with some amazement, a bit of um, you know confusion. That it's just it seems to be very a scandal-ridden political crowd that is kind of um, you know taking taking control of the of the Austrian government and 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 nothing seems to really be able to throw them um, to throw them off the chair. So I think I don't know. I mean, without without knowing all the details, it's just this general bit of an amazement how little happens after so many scandals and how much this is just you know taken as okay it's kind of how it always was and 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 it continues to be that way and for me personally i think you know sebastian kurz although he did um you know he did come to power with i think very explicit claims of you know getting rid of that old corrupt system it's it's you know a message that we've heard time and time again also in italy many many times and i've never really bought it from him i mean he always looked a bit too polished a bit too you know opportunistic also um you know he formed coalition governments with basically any party that that was available no um kind of hesitance to you know i kind of extend his his hands to to right-wing parties either so he seems to be a very 
you know, a, a typical power politician. In that sense, not um, so much surprising that he's doing a Netanyahu, as <laughs> if that's already a standing term. Tessa, briefly, we're running. I'm afraid we're running out of time with with we're talking on this subject. But I mean, the, the idea that we have a power politician in in Vienna, um, what does that do for for Austria as a country itself in terms of uh, in a, where it stands politically, how it feels politically? Because it's it's such a deeply divided country, isn't it? Between between state and countryside. Well, this is it's quite interesting because, of course, you have only one strong uh, social democratic headquarters, which is Vienna, which is governed by the social democrats for the past hundred years. And uh, two million of the nine Austrian millions live there. So uh, this was always a completely different thing from the countryside, the countryside next to more direction, Switzerland to the closed borders, um, soonish closed borders uh, is, of course, deeply conservative um countryside uh, and most of the smaller provincial uh, towns uh, of the regions, the, the, there's a more conservative feel in the country. And they have partly not been friends of the Kurz conservative party because he sort of put his own people in place and tried to uh, demote the regional uh, kings and queens of the, of, the, of the old conservative party. So they are looking at this whole thing with um, ambivalence uh, because they are kind of, um, of course, hoping that he stays in power and they have expressed uh, solidarity. But secretly, of course, they have also often thought that what the brand of conservative politics with right-wing populist um, uh, immigration politics plus even sort of this flirt with the far right, um, this has not always pleased everyone who is a classic sort of uh, Catholic uh, conservative um, countryside uh, 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 Austrian. And so it will be quite interesting how long this solidarity with Kurz lasts if these problems become stronger. But the real key thing is the Green Party, which is the small coalition party of Kurz now. If he, ha if he really gets deeper and deeper into legal trouble, then they have to basically see if they can, can stay in coalition with him or not. And if they leave the coalition, then we'll have new elections. Tessa Shishkovitz, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. In a moment, we head to Helsinki. What kind of city do you want to live in? Every week on The Urbanist, we delve into the biggest questions about urban living and meet the people championing change in our cities. From star architects to designosauruses, protected views to landfills, river walks and sidewalks, wayfinding and cycle highways, the city is alive and kicking. So how can we make them better places to live in? The other great city creation, of course, is sex. Young people go to cities to have a good time and to enjoy themselves and to meet their life partners and maybe a few other people on the way. Join me, Andrew Tuck, every Thursday at 20 hundred hours London time for a brand new episode. Or subscribe to the podcast and listen as you go. The Urbanist, the show that knows its good mares from its planning nightmares. Nine forty-two in London, ten forty-two in Zurich. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's cross over to Helsinki next. Joining me on the line is our correspondent in the capital, Petri Butzov. Good morning, Petri. 
Good morning, Emma, and greetings from the sunny Helsinki. I've done my uh, morning swim already and uh, enjoying some sunshine here. Okay, don't rub it in. Um, tell us uh, what's happening where you are, apart from uh, a buco- bucolic bliss. <laughs> Lots of interesting stuff happening. I, I wanted to start off with a really happy topic about storing nuclear waste. And and basically, this week we saw excavation work start um, in what is what the Finnish authorities claim is the world's first kind of long-term facility for storing nuclear waste, uh, so-called deposition tunnels. They're building this network in, in western Finland, in, in the island of Olkiluoto, um, uh, a network of about 100 tunnels deep underground, I think about 400 to 500 meters, which will be used to uh, dispose of spent nuclear fuel. And the interesting thing is, I mean, this raises all kinds of troubling questions as, as the material can be radioactive for 100,000 years. You know, how do you inform future generations about what lies in these tunnels? What language will they speak in 100 years, 100,000 years time? You know, how can we be sure that these tunnels will be safe from, uh, let's say, war, bombing, destruction? for for such a long time. So this is a really, really interesting project. Yes, you have to be careful to tell the right people, but not to tell too many people where these these places are, isn't it? Um, What surprised me was when I was reading about this is the dependence of of the Finns on on nuclear power. I think what a third of your power is is nuclear and and a fifth nuclear reactor is currently being built. You're, You're big fans of this kind of stuff. That's correct, Emma. Yeah, that's correct. That's somewhat surprising. Um, you know, it's been a it's been a hot political topic for 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 decades now. Um, the Greens, um, the Green Party, which is quite a large party in Finland, initially opposed uh, nuclear power stations, and they even left the government, I think, once or twice o- over this. But I mean, they're now sort of moving to the camp that supports nuclear power um, because of climate change goals. And there's just this realization that Finland cannot uh, meet its very ambitious climate goals without using using uh, nuclear power, which is, of course, you know, it's a clean uh, kind of fossil uh, fuel-free option of, of um, producing energy, but uh, raises all kinds of questions regarding the storing of this uh, waste that it produces. Um, let's move on to uh, a story that um, absolutely made my um, jaw drop, which is about, it's from the Helsing in Sanomat, about a village in Thailand uh, where people live in Finnish houses. Ta- tell us a little bit more about these. This sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a completely crazy story. So so it's actually in, in, in Taiwan. I also thought it was in Thailand first, but um, there's, a, there's a small village that um, has um, a couple of Finnish buildings that look like UFOs. And the backstory to this is in, in the 1960s, you know, the wild decade of architecture and so on, uh, a Finnish architect by the name of Matti Suuronen um, designed these UFO houses. Uh, I think there's a total of 100 of these around the world. They were initially designed to be uh, ski uh, lodges. I don't really understand why you would, you know, design a UFO <laughs> looking ski lodge, but you know, it was a wild decade for many reasons. Um, and there, um, now this village in, in, in Taiwan, this Finnish uh, Helsinki Sonoma journalist came across this village, traveled there and, and talked to these people. And, you know, they had no idea that the buildings were designed uh, by by a famous Finnish architect um, and that they're kind of these buildings are quite wanted buildings. Actually, there's one in London located on the roof, terrace of uh, the central central St. Martin's College. Um, but it turned out then that they were actually copies. They, they were not original UFO buildings. I think the name was 
Futuro, Futuro buildings. But yeah, they were they were built by a Taiwanese uh, architect who was a student in Finland and and saw these buildings and then then copied them. Monocle's Petri Burtsov in Helsinki. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Stay with us. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. In a little while, we'll be hearing once again from our editorial director, Tyler Brule, on his travels in India. But uh, let's return to our panellists. I'm delighted to say Florian Egli joins us from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich, our Zurich Bureau studio, and Vincent McAvinney here in London. It's great to have you uh, going through the papers for us. And just tell us, the, the thing that a lot of the papers are talking about today is that wonderful path out of lockdown that the United Kingdom was so confidently and stridently embracing, could it all be derailed by the Indian version of coronavirus? Yeah, it had all been going a little bit too well, hadn't it? Well, the Prime Minister gave a press conference on Friday, which was delayed, so that's always a worrying sign that they're still arguing behind the scenes. But tomorrow, the fourth stage in the UK's roadmap of unlocking goes ahead, as was expected, which means that you have the return of things like indoor dining uh, in pubs, bars, cafes. You're going to have indoor entertainment like museums, cinemas, children's play areas opening, theatres, concert halls, conference centres, sports stadiums, all of that opening up. Overnight stays are allowed. Weddings uh, are allowed uh, among groups of up to 30 and unlimited numbers of people attending funerals. So that is almost back to normal life. The next stage, though, was in uh, the last part of June, was that all rules were expected to be lifted. And so companies have been uh, trying to hedge their bets on on what they do. There's a good story in the Sunday Times today that it has been an absolutely boom time online. Now people are feeling, uh, you know, more confident about uh, this big summer that they were promised, that people have been booking tickets for things. One of the first things to reopen, which is, you know, pretty fitting, is the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, which will reopen on Wednesday. And of course, that theatre, you know, it's not the original one, but it's on the site of the original. It uh, had to be shut the last time for the plague, uh, you know, Famously, and so now it's reopening with the Midsummer Night's Dream, which of course uh, is quite a apt one for uh, the weird summer that we're about to experience. But lots of shows are, are reopening, but some waiting until that June the 21st date uh, because they don't want any kind of social distancing. They don't think the theatres can accommodate it. Um, and so things like, you know, big blockbuster ones like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, they're waiting off uh, others around the West End. But the big factor now that is putting all this in doubt is that the Prime Minister, again, delayed a decision on shutting uh, travel from India. If you look at the, you know, when the variant was really starting to take off there, neighbouring countries, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, uh, they were put on the red list. But the Prime Minister waited for three further weeks to put India on it because he had a much delayed trip himself to India uh, and he didn't want to offend the Sunday Times as saying uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and that is why he hesitated until it was completely unavoidable. And it is astonishing, isn't it, because it then harks back to all the accusations that Boris Johnson hesitated in so many other occasions to to shut down the United Kingdom. And as a result, 
possibly paid a much tougher price. Yeah, I mean, this means that 20,000 passengers uh, who could have been infected with this new very virulent strain have managed to get in in this time period. And we are seeing in parts of the UK where you have high numbers of Indian communities, so in Bolton and Bradford, that is where this is really taking off this variant. And those are also areas where they've struggled the most to get the vaccine out because of a lot of vaccine myths about not putting the information into into sort of translated languages. Um, and so they are now trying to surge vaccinate those areas. But it could put all of this in jeopardy because we know it's much more virulent than the dominant strain here, the Kent strain. Uh, but it also seems to affect younger people to a greater degree as well. And those are the people that are still not being vaccinated. The UK is just getting around now to it's about to start vaccinating those who are in their late 30s. Um, and so this is causing real problems for the government because, and as you say, Boris Johnson, we know that he's been ever so reluctant. He is, you know, he claims to be a libertarian at his core, that he doesn't like imposing rules. And we know that he has had to be dragged to these decisions. And in this public inquiry, which he has announced this week on the early stages of COVID, it is expected that that will be the most damaging bit. That's the bit that Dominic Cummings is coming for him on, is that every time they had to take a decision, the prime minister dithered and delayed and, and wanted to play to the gallery and say it was constantly in his announcements, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I'm having to. He was, you know, he was the very much the reluctant uh, head boy as, you know, the bad boy of school that was having to impose some rules. Florian, I mean, the, the way that the United Kingdom's uh, uh, stock has risen and fallen in the last couple of couple of years has been quite astonishing. But the thought that the UK just about to open up fully to the rest of the world, suddenly finding itself back into lockdown again because of perhaps a delay due to a couple of planes coming in from from India. That That is just something that no one needs, isn't it? Yeah, and if you put this in context, I mean, I don't know, that's, that's you know, a thought. I'm not sure if that's really behind it. But think about, you know, how much would the UK have feared to disappoint, disappoint um, Prime Minister Modi if it were a part of the European Union? So is is that, you know that fear, you know, that you have to actually fulfill the demands and cannot disappoint other big powers. Is that part of of the new UK story now, kind of as an independent country that wants to be at arm's length with, you know, the big power nations of this world, but in fact just isn't, and therefore, you know, probably has to be quite a bit more cautious than um, than Boris Johnson would like to be on the international stage, leading you know to some very bizarre decisions like like um, like this delay in, in suspending flights to and from India. Uh, let's bring in uh, once again our editorial director Tyler Brule on the line from Murano. Good to have you back, Tyler. Thank you very much, Emma. Just listening to to you know the idea of people being able to travel and not travel and borders opening and borders closing. What's on the what's on the on the schedule for Mr. Brule in the next couple of weeks? I'm, I hope I hope nothing is stopping you from getting back on the road. No, and this was interesting as well. Just the, the past few days being in in Milan, you see on one side the toll that this has taken on on companies, and um, I did feel like you know a, a couple of of colleagues, um, you know, along with myself. We felt like real pioneers because uh, we went to see a number of clients who haven't, they've not been receiving visitors for over a year. So we went to a couple of, of factories, went to a couple of HQs in and around Milan, and people were like, it's just so great to have people back in, in the building. Let's air out the meeting rooms. And, and some of them were a little bit musty, I have to say, because they're, they're, companies have not had face-to-face meetings in, in a while. So over the coming weeks, um, Yes, a little bit of a little bit of Brussels, a little bit of Paris, Antwerp, 
Um, and I can say that we're going to be really kicking off part of our uh, it's a part of our book signing tour uh, for our new book on homes. Part of it in London. Um, we'll also be in Antwerp. We're going to be in Amsterdam. We're going to be in Copenhagen uh, as well all over the coming week. Look at an autobahn and you'll see Mr. Brule on it. Or I'm assuming you'll be on the train for quite a lot of that. But just going, going back train, to... Flat, train, plane, cars, you name it. You do, you're doing the lot, aren't you? You're ticking, you're ticking all the boxes. Um, one thing I'm quite interested in when it comes to, to, to Italy is the fact that the Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, has been very much part of the European Union project. And as a result, people are now looking to, to, to Italy as almost the next strong country, the next great European nation, always a hugely important part, third, third biggest economy. But but you've got that feeling now that Italy is, as a, as a nation, on a rise internationally within the EU. Absolutely, and, and very much, I mean, not just um, a, a focus from, from top to toe, but uh, very interesting meetings that we were having with the, the governments of, of Lombardia uh, and, of course, uh, with Milan as well. There was this almost this pause button that you know, you, we, we saw this incredible rise of Milan after Expo. Uh, of course, uh, a number of, 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 of breaks, of course, uh, given from a tax point of view, uh, which has attracted certainly a, a whole new uh, wave uh, of new residents to the city. So this incredible you know, momentum was already happening. Now you also have a Draghi administration in Rome. Um, and, and there, hopefully, I mean, people are going to be seeing um, a country which, you know, could really, you know, get the engines fired up again. And I, I can only say, I mean, when you drive around Veneto, you just see you're really in the midst, almost, you know, sandwiched in between uh, this incredible engine um, of, of Northern Italy because just the sheer number of trucks you know, heading, you know, into Portugal with wood, uh, heading up to Germany, to Poland, you really see how important this is as, as truly a part of the European and certainly the EU engine. It is a, a huge corridor. And having driven that motorway, I know it's not that amount of that, that much fun. It's, it's great for business, but it's not great for your eyesight or your heart rate. No, exactly. When you have sort of, you know, these, these six lane highways and two of them are just, you know, occupied by, by trailers, you're just talking thousands thousands of them and then of course you know you as everyone knows you have to pass and you you have a a, a maserati uh, literally up up your tail um it's uh, it it's yeah it does it does get the heart racing tyler thank you so much for joining us on the line from morano have a great way great weekend uh, thanks, and thanks Emma. to our editor and thank you both also to uh, my guests florian egley and uh to uh, vincent mcavinney as well vincent what's on the cards for you this week uh, I'm actually going back to Jersey, where I'm from. Uh, they've lifted their quarantine restrictions, so that'll be a nice break. Getting on a flight, going to an airport, it's going to feel different. And it's vaccination time, I think, for you. Florian, it what's is. on the cards in Zurich when everyone goes back to work? Busy schedule up next week. Unfortunately, I was—I I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to deliver a lecture tomorrow in Lucerne. It's still on Zoom, so I hope this will end soon. But busy schedule ahead, mostly on Zoom and in offices. Another couple of hours of staring into a little green light and sitting up straight. What more could we ask for? Thank you all to all my guests on today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Uh, thanks to our producers, Marcus Hippie. Studio manager in London was Nora Hoel and Desiree Bantley was looking after the sound in Zurich. Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week but for now from me emma nelson goodbye thank you very much for listening and have a great week 